All right. Um, we're back now, and we have with us Kate, Dr. Kate Zimmerman, who is the new medical director for Southern Maine EMS. Kate, you want to introduce yourself at all? Sure. Um, so thank you for having me. It's my first <laughs> podcast ever. It's going to get me in a lot of trouble. Um, so I've been with Maine Medical Center um, since 2003 well, when I started as a resident and as an attending in 2006, and my niche has been medical student education. Um, but I do have a prior life in EMS, where I worked as a paramedic for a number of years. And um, fortunately, I guess my office is right across from Matt's, and that's how <laughs> I heard that the position was open and um, was really excited. It's a good time in my, good point in my life um, to take the time to do this. And so I kind of jumped in feet first a couple months ago. And here we are. So here we are. A couple months in, Talking about podcast. things that have been completed before... <laughs> We owe, arrived, so I'm catching up. We owe a huge debt of gratitude to Dr. Marlene Cormier out of Midcoast Hospital for the years that she spent in the position of Region 1's medical director. Marlene, for a couple different reasons, both personally and professionally, um, had been interested in stepping down, and we're really excited to have Kate filling that that space for us. And uh, this, is, um, this is, Kate's been in the position now for a couple different months, and so um, here we go, because we're uh, right in the middle of the protocol change, which I think right. is a... It's a tough but interesting time to be joining the group. So um, here we go. And I, we thought what we would do is we'd use this dialogue as a, br a bridge between the blue and the red section and talking specifically about uh, vasopressor use in main EMS. And one reason why we thought this would be a nice bridge is because um, Tim is going to, be, um, going, to, going to be publishing the white paper on vasopressor use. And Kate kind of took over from Marlene, who had done a lot of the update in the red section. Uh, let me give you a little bit of background in in why we got here and what's going on. And I think we have Jonathan Busco, medical director for Region 4, um, to thank for alerting us and, and giving us some uh, primer to think about our vasopressor selector. Jonathan had brought this up in the red section review and in particular because the red section reflects on vasopressor use and dopamine use. And it's interesting because we reference pressors in four of our sections. Well, in the 2013 update, they'll be referenced in four sections. One is under cardiogenic shock. The other is in the post-arrest protocol, which we'll be talking about. We next reference pressors in bradycardia. And then finally, we reference pressors in medical shock and sepsis. And one of the things to recognize is that there's a, lot of, there's a lot of dialogue nationally and there's a lot of literature nationally about the quote-unquote best presser. And in the past, non, not a lot of that literature or data had matured to a point that we felt that we needed to move, move away from dopamine. And what's happened in the last couple of years, I think, is that we've gotten more and more uh, data. And we're going to try to talk to you about that data. First, just for you to recognize... As main EMS, we use pressors about 250 times a year. And of those uses, approximately one-third are in the case of sepsis and medical shock. One-third is in the case of cardiogenic shock from MI. And one-third is in the post-cardiac arrest patient with cardiogenic shock. And so when we thought about this, the surviving sepsis campaign update in 2012 very strongly recommended moving away from dopamine toward norepinephrine. 
And when we thought about this, we wondered about not only sepsis and medical shock, but in car but about cardiogenic shock in, in uh, infarct and cardiogenic shock after arrest. And what we hope to do in the next couple minutes is walk you through our thought process and how we got to uh, the place that we got to when it comes to presser use uh, for main EMS. Okay, so what we know about pressors is that each presser has different effects at different uh, receptors, either in the vasculature or in the heart or in other parts of the body. And one way that we began thinking about this is to reflect on those different receptors and then touch on what pressors act where. So, Tim, how, would you mind walking us through some of those different receptors uh, and what those receptors do for us? Sure. Let me. What I'm going to do is just back up because I, I really have to think about this stuff in sort of Fisher Price simplicity for me to get my head around it. So, um, backing up, you know, a presser just by definition, I think of as a medicine that presses the heart into contracting more forcefully and presses the veins and the arteries to squeeze smaller. And the result of that pressing action of a presser is to increase perfusion. And that's really the goal here. So the reason we get to these medicines and we consider them is that we're worried that our patient has poor perfusion and that we may have gotten there by low blood pressure, we may have gotten there by um, other evidence of low perfusion like cool extremities, weak pulses, confusion, uh, and here we are. So when we pick what presser we're going to use, we, in a sophisticated way, think back to the actual receptors that are going to receive that medicine in the bloodstream. And those receptors are attached to different places in the body. So the two that are really interesting for us in our EMS indications is the alpha-1 receptor and the beta-1 receptor. The alpha-1 receptor, and it really is not important to remember this vocab, it's just to understand that these um, have different actions in different places. The alpha-1 is, is, sits on your blood vessels. And when the medicine hits that receptor, it signals the blood pressures to squeeze, to make those pipes smaller. And when you have those pipes squeeze smaller, more blood flow gets pushed back to your heart, which facilitates your heart pushing out more and, again, increasing your end goal, which is to increase your perfusion. The other part, the other receptor that's important for these medicine is the beta-1 receptor. And your beta-1 receptor lives in your heart. When the beta-1 receptor receives this presser medicine, which is in the past dopamine and now norepinephrine, um, it tells the heart to beat faster and to beat stronger. So you increase the contractility and you increase the heart rate. The end result of squeezing and constricting the uh, peripheral blood vessels and increasing the contractility of the heart is our end goal, increased perfusion. And so when we think about this, you know, we had this recommendation to consider norepinephrine verse, instead of dopamine for sepsis, and we had to reconcile the other indications for which we're using um, oppressors, including, as we mentioned earlier, cardiogenic shock in the face of uh, infarction and cardiogenic shock after um, uh, a cardiac arrest. And when we look at dopamine versus norepinephrine from those two receptors that Tim mentioned, the alpha-1 and the beta-1, it turns out that norepinephrine is superior, is a superior alpha-1 stimulator than dopamine. Dopamine still does that, but norepinephrine does it better. And from a beta-1 uh, standpoint, norepinephrine and dopamine do these things equally. Remember that with, nor with dopamine, you have different effects at different doses, and it turns out the same is true for norepinephrine. Now, the big question becomes, um, can we use norepinephrine in cardiogenic shock? And it turns out that many folks do that, 
But there's been one big study that came out in March of 2010 published in the New England Journal of Medicine that I'm going to ask uh, Dr. Zimmerman, Kate, to help us out with discussing. Um, and this is, this is a title, The Comparison of Dopamine and Norepinephrine in the Treatment of Shock. And maybe I'll just kind of give a little bit of a background here and, and talk about what they did, and then maybe Kate can talk about the outcomes a little bit. So what these guys did is a, this is a, a, a study that from lots of different places uh, uh, that enrolled people to who required the use of pressors into one of two categories. Um, they either received dopamine or they received norepinephrine. But the trick was that the investigators didn't know what the patient, patient was getting. They knew that they were just getting a presser and they didn't know what they were getting. And it turns out they actually had pretty good numbers. They had 858 patients receiving dopamine and 821 patients receiving norepinephrine. And I think that that's the biggest, um, that's the biggest uh, study that's ever been run that looks at head-to-head -head use of one versus another. Now, one thing that they were interested in is, is determining the rate of death at 28 days. Uh, and one of the reasons that was the primary outcome is because norepinephrine had been linked to better survival in sepsis based on smaller studies looking at this same question. But the other thing, the secondary thing they looked at, is they looked at adverse effects. And so they looked at survival primarily, and then they looked at adverse effects. And those adverse effects were a number of folks requiring ventilation, the length of stay in the hospital, in the ICU, the number of arrhythmias, et cetera, et cetera. So, Kate, what were the major findings that came out of this study? So the major findings in this study was that at uh, 28 days, it showed no difference in mortality um, between the norepinephrine or dopamine uh, pressors. And, but what they did find is that um, with dopamine, there was an increased incident in arrhythmias. Um, so more um, atrial, I think, and even ventricular um, arrhythmias in these patients, um, which were significant. Um, increased uh, death with, with uh, cardiogenic shock with the use of dopamine um, as well. No real difference in septic or hypovolemic shock. Um, but again, you know, the, the rhythm issue uh, was a big one um, in this, this study. So overall found that norepinephrine was probably a safer presser to use. Yeah, I think this paper was really helpful for us as the MDPB to think about this question because we, um, uh, we, we, uh, we learn in this paper that there may not be a major survival outcome for sepsis, which is what we led us into this discussion, um, but we do find there's much, much fewer adverse reactions in the form of arrhythmias, um, half as many ventricular arrhythmias, uh, and almost half as many atrial arrhythmias, and there may even be a better survival for the cardiogenic shock patient. And I think it's those reasons that led us to this idea that norepinephrine uh, should be the new presser in, uh, used uh, by main EMS. So I'm just trying to think back into my paramedic years. I, we used to have our dopamine um, drips and kind of use the wheel in our head to help calculate. So how am I going to calculate a drip um, for norepinephrine? I mean, I'm assuming that's going to take some education. Great question, Kate. And I think um, one of the things that the MDPB recognizes is that when we're giving pressors, we really do, the patient really deserves uh, a level of exactness in the delivery of those pressors. And that what we used to do was counting drips and drip rates and calculating uh, based on the wheel that you mentioned. And 
how many drips equals X number of micrograms, et cetera, et cetera. The reality is that today we recognize that that's not exact and that we need a pump in order to provide these medications safely and effectively. If we really want to get the benefit of these meds and cut down on the risk of these medications, then we need to, um, we need to use a pump to do so. Now, just a few words about norepinephrine in general. Uh, one of the things you'll notice about norepinephrine when it does hit the trucks is it will come in uh, dark vials, and they're typically four milligram vials. Um, and uh, what we know about norepinephrine is it doesn't exist in a premixed form very long. It's very heat sensitive and light sensitive. And so when it comes in premixed bags, those bags need to be used in a very short period of time. I think it's on the order of weeks or a week mm -hmm. that it has to be used. Yeah, I think even in refrigeration, it's about a week yeah. and less so. But when we have the norepinephrine vials that we can then mix with saline or, or dextrose ourselves, the norepinephrine vials end up lasting for a much longer time and uh, they can be mixed at any time uh, when these are used. Now, the pump issue is a, an important issue. It's something that we recognized in 2011, and if you recall, we started moving in this direction by mandating pumps in pediatrics. And for the same reasons that we did so in pediatrics, we are doing so for adults now. It, we need pumps in order to really be efficacious in the, the delivery of these medications, as well as safe in the delivery of these medications. It's true for dopamine, and it's true for norepinephrine as well. It's true in pediatrics, and it's equally true in adults. For anyone interested in learning more about pumps and about the main EMS requirements for pumps, if you refer back to the frequently asked questions section that Carrie Parmelo put together for 2011, you'll find all the information that we have in there about pumps, and that's on the main EMS website. You can also find all the criteria for a pump that meets main EMS standards on the approved equipment list. Great. So that kind of wraps up the discussion about pressors and sort of our thought process and our sequence of considering what pressors are, are the most important ones to go through. Again, there'll be much more information that comes out about this. This is just the first foray. It's the 30,000-foot view. Tim's going to put out that paper on pressor selection and the white paper that we want to use. And there'll be more in the uh, educational uh, bit here for you guys to reference when we get to education, both in the didactic and the other uh, uh, in the other form, the, the online form from MEMSED. But let's transition now and think about the rest of the red section. And there's a couple major things that we've started looking at. Kate, you want to start um, start some of these, these discussions sure. for us? Yeah. So under the cardiac arrest um, and dysrhythmia protocol, uh, we now recommend capnography on scene um, as well as re resuscitation on scene. I think we know in terms of how useful capnography is, especially in showing us return of um, spontaneous circulation um, when we're working uh, these codes. Also, I think it will help us in terms of uh, measuring how effective our resuscitation efforts are, so how effective our uh, compressions are. And so that's going to be recommended to be used even in line with our bag valve mask ventilations. Do you have anything else? Yeah, no, I, I, I think, you know, this is a pretty strong recommendation from the AHA in 2010. It's something that we started talking about in 2011 in our protocols. I think you're right on board, Kate, about return of spontaneous circulation or ROSC. I actually think there's a use of capnography and monitoring the post-arrest patient, too, for what I like to call LOSC. Because if you can have a return of spontaneous circulation, you can have a loss of spontaneous circulation. And remember that the post-arrest, the resuscitated patient, 
does have a risk for rearrest, and it's a perfect, perfect way to um, to monitor along with your rhythm uh, and uh, your repeated physical examinations. The one place where the you know we'll 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 recognize VT, we will recognize VF, we will recognize asystole on a monitor, but we may not recognize that PEA is PEA because we're not constantly checking a pulse. And the patient who's on capnography who goes into PEA, those folks will suddenly stop perfusing and you'll start changing your capnography readings. Remember, you'll drop your capnography readings uh, from whatever they were, typically normal or high normal, above normal, to lower than normal. And then you'll recognize that this person has suffered LOSC, or again, Correct. loss of spontaneous circulation. And along with all the other things that I have coined in my career, including Gabbage, which is the gastric bypass. I thought that was somebody else. Oh no 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 no, that's me. You. That's me. So I'm crediting somebody else. No, well you can go, you can get back to the source right. and credit me for Gabbage. You can also credit me for craps. I don't think I've heard that one. Oh, that's my newest one. That's chronic recurrent abdominal pain syndrome, aka craps, which okay. I think is a perfect perfect name for that that syndrome, which we've all run into, and it, it's it's very apropos, right? So LOSC. Gabbage and craps; those are mine. I'm gonna I'm gonna patent those ones. Those are mine. Okay, um, I'm gonna get back to more of the intellectual conversation. <laughs> I think that's why I'm here in the room to kind of bring things back exactly. to where they should be. Um, just in talking about capnography, it just reminds me, and, and perhaps this has already been mentioned, and I'm sure it's rolled out in the education pieces. Um, but pulse oximetry is not a reliable measure um, in terms of LOSC. LOSC. Um, because it's going to be much slower uh, decline than you will see in the capnography. So the capnography is going to change more quickly, I guess Absolutely. would be the other way to say it. Um, so again, capnography should be used in most of our patients. And in, from the emergency department standpoint, we're using it frequently. Great. Um, and so I think rolling this out um, uniformly is now let me let me ask you one question though, because I'm I'm all in with capnography, but talk to me more about this resuscitation on scene and what that's all about. Funny you should ask. <laughs> so the resuscitation on scene, um, there are a number of things to uh, reasons why we're we're uh, bringing this up. Um, I think we all know that the longer we're uh, working a code, the likelihood of that person regaining. Um, circulation is lower. So in, in order for a higher success rate, we need to be able to give good CPR. And we know that good CPR is CPR on a hard surface, probably in a kneeling position, um, and not riding in the back of a, a rig, um, careening to the hospital. So effective CPR is really important. So at least 100 compressions per minute at 2 inches consistent with little interruption. Um, and so with this, I think it's, it's important um, in those patients that are going to have the biggest chance of survival is to give them the best CPR, and that's proven to be done um, on scene. There was an abstract, um, I'll just pull this out, that Matt, you had found, looking at the comparison of chest compression quality delivered during on-scene transport um, CPR on scene and transport, and they found that there was worse CPR delivery during transport. Um, and they were using an accelerometer where they could measure the um, rate of compressions as well as the depth. And I think you've looked at this as well. 
Yeah, so we've, we've kind of looked at, so this study is an abstract published in, uh, I forget exactly when, Pre uh, 2011, 2011, out of pre-hospital emergency care, and essentially they did exactly what Kate mentions, that they used accelerometers and they measured CPR effectiveness. CPR effectiveness, in my mind, is dictated by three different things. One thing is hands-on time, or the amount of time the patient's receiving compressions throughout their resuscitation. Two is the rate, and remember that uh, AHA right now is saying at least 100. We know that there's a rate at which uh, is too slow, and that's probably less than 100. We know there's a rate that's probably too high, and that's probably somewhere around 125. And then at rates over 125, we have decreased cardiac filling, and then we're not pushing blood around. And then the final bit here is the depth. The depth right now, recommendations are two inches. We know that uh, less than two inches, you're not getting effective squeeze. More than two inches, you're not getting effective filling. And so we've done something similar like this just to kind of test it a little bit ourselves where we took providers who were resuscitating on the floor and then we took that same provider and we had them try to do compressions in the back of the ambulance. And we had very similar findings here that there was decreased effectiveness both in hands-on time, rate, and depth when you move from a uh, still position to a movement position. Um, now, the, the authors of that abstract found a 30% decrease in effectiveness. Mm -hmm. Now, interestingly, the I believe it's Japanese just published something that we were looking at a few minutes ago that said they actually looked at, um, I believe it was EMG or muscle use during various, uh, during CPR. They found that you use your hips and thighs when you're kneeling and resuscitating someone uh, on the floor and that you use your shoulders and your arms when you're trying to resuscitate someone in the back of a moving ambulance and they postulate that you fatigue more and that might be related to the decreased effectiveness when you try to resuscitate someone in a moving ambulance but no matter what we know that moving the patient decreases the effectiveness of CPR and there's because of that the MDPB is recommending resuscitation on scene or as close to the scene as possible. Certainly one of the reasons why we don't say you must resuscitate on scene is because we recognize we can't account for all of the various operational issues that arise. You might, the person might arrest in a bathroom stall and you may not be able to work them there. You have to drag them to a place where you could work them. But no matter what, we know that working them as close to the point at which they drop ends up being, an, uh, being the most effective way to resuscitate these folks. And you have a lot less interruption as well, yes. like trying to get them on the board, trying to get them on a stretcher, yep. getting them into the rig, you know, getting every, having everybody follow them. And so that's a, a significant amount of interruption and compression. Also, I would, from, a, from another perspective, I always like to take the opportunity to talk about force protection and the safety of providers. We know that being unbelted in the back of a moving ambulance, especially standing up, is going to introduce the opportunity for us to become seriously injured or killed. Um, in, in the midst of uh, motor vehicle collision. So it's also really important to remember that if we end up hurt, we end up dead, there will be other patients that we can't have a positive impact on. So it's also extremely important that we take the opportunity to provide not only the best care possible to this patient by staying on scene, but also to keep ourselves safe. Yeah, and, and I, that's absolutely true, and thanks for that, that sort of reality check there, Don. I think the other piece of the puzzle that we can reflect on here, this might sound pretty um, new and novel to folks because in the past we always used to say get these patients to the hospital, but I, we have some pretty impressive outcomes data 
from some of our services across the state that have been showing some really, really impressive uh, improvements in survival by doing these two things, using capnography and resuscitating on scene. And I think that as a, as a state, we can take a lot of pride uh, collectively in those outcomes, but I think we also should try to, to duplicate those outcomes locally. And one of the biggest things that some of those services have done is really focus on scene resuscitation. Not mistaken, there's been some uh, competition going on between a few services, and it's un it's unfortunate that Tim had to leave because at some point we may need to be sharing a photo of Tim as a, as a show note because yeah. uh, the service that he was working with may or may not have had quite the same uh, competitive edge that another service did. I, I will just publicly thank Augusta Fire Department and Portland Fire Department for agreeing to trial some of these things for us and for uh, and, and, and in an effort to uh, encourage those services, the medical directors of both services, i.e. Tim and Augusta and me in Portland, uh, we decided that we would put our money where our mouth is and uh, we would um, uh, we put our actually our hair where our mouth was in these cases and the person with the best outcomes after one year got to save their quaff while the person with the less good outcomes would be um, subject to a shearing session most likely to occur at the 2013 uh, Samoset conference so if you guys want to see Tim lose his hair please come to that because uh, unfortunately while his service had great improvements in outcomes they didn't quite meet the improvements that there were in Portland, at Portland Fire Department. Yes, but I will reiterate the fact that both agencies had very impressive outcomes this year, and it's really a testament to um, their participation and their desire to provide the best care to their patients. So, um, But where Tim was involved in the podcast, we had to take the opportunity to sell him out. And, and, and I, again, I, I would reiterate what Don says, that both services are owed a tremendous, um, uh, a tremendous uh, congratulations for their accomplishments. And if folks are particularly interested in this, uh, please contact John Quistra from Portland Fire Department, who has been the uh, person who's been tracking those outcomes and following those outcomes, in, at least in the Portland area. Well, one of the other big things that folks will see in the cardiac arrest section is a comment that says, consider basic airway measures in the pulseless patient. Um, Kate, what do you, what do we, why was that put in there? Um, that was put in there because of an article um, in JAMA entitled Association, excuse me, Association of Pre-Hospital Advanced Airway Management with Neurologic Outcome and Survival in Patients with Out-of-Hospital Cardiac Arrest. And that was in this year, January 16th of uh, 2013. And um, this was a large study uh, with, goodness, this was in Japan with... 649,000 patients and about a quarter of a million in each um, arm looking at airway management with basic measures such as bag valve mask versus um, advanced airways, including both supraglottic and endotracheal intubation. And what they found was that both endotracheal intubation and supraglottic airways um, were associated with decreased chance of favor favorable neurologic outcome. Um, they couldn't establish a causal relationship because this was an observational study um, based on the study design itself, but it clearly showed um, that there were less less favorable outcome. 
And they thought of a few things. You know, there's the skill itself. You know, it takes time to do this skill. It's a skill that you need to be quite adept with. Um, and while you're performing this skill, you are interrupting um, compressions. Also, not recognizing the displacement of the tube, um, inadvertent hyperventilation. So once the tube is in, it's not like we're stopping and giving a few breaths and continuing CPR. You can do simultaneous ventilation. And so a lot of these patients are being hyperventilated. This resulted in um, increased intrathoracic pressure, which will decrease um, perfusion of the heart and the brain, and also led to perhaps some hyperoxia, which um, too much oxygen in these uh, patients can also be detrimental. So I think we can really effectively manage patients' airways with basic techniques, such as bag valve mask, using a nasopharyngeal or oropharyngeal airway as an adjunct. Um, and I think it brings us back to kind of the BLS before ALS uh, theme and making sure that we're really good at um, doing bag valve mask ventilation. You know, two-person technique, if available, um, would be key. So yeah, thank you for that, Kate. Um, Kate's referencing this paper that came out of JAMA earlier this year, and the, the folks who criticize it do account for the fact that it is an observational study, which we definitely rec recognize. You can't make a causal relationship between intubation and outcome here, but I think that the MDPB recognizes this is just one of many, many other papers that have found this, and some of the other papers are able to better create a causal link between the two. And what we know is that we can manage these folks with basic measures. And so if there is a, a, a poor outcome seen with intubation, either because of hyperventilation, because of hyperoxia, or because of interruptions, then we should probably focus on a less invasive strategy. Now, what was interesting about this paper is that most of the literature before this is focused on intubation, but this paper looked and found that the outcomes were similar with the uh, blind insertion airway devices too, and you know why that is remains to be seen. It might be related to uh, hyperoxia, it may be related to aggressive ventilation, and it may be related to something else, physiologic or anatomic. And this paper kind of reminds us that in animal studies, at least, there's been shown to be an internal tamponade of the internal carotid artery, which in theory limits blood flow to the brain which we know is not our goal. Our goal is to maximize blood flow to the brain and the coronary arteries during the pulseless phase of, uh, of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. So we're adding this uh, as a consideration, to consider basic measures only in the pulseless patient uh, when we're in a pulseless phase of cardiac arrest. And as we learn more, we'll update this and make stronger recommendations if necessary. Well, another thing that we, uh, we've added to the red section is a post-resuscitation care algorithm. One of, the, one of the things we recognize is that when we take better care of the cardiac arrest patient, we should expect to see more survivors, and I think that experience across the state has proven that. And then we have some survival rates, which are pretty impressive for all rhythms and, and very interesting uh, uh, to see happen. And with, with that in mind, we realized we needed to put together a, resusc a, a, a really a, a guideline or a protocol for the patient who has gained return of spontaneous circulation. The, you know, we're, we're still kind of working through this, but the major things that we know are important in this patient population are first and foremost um, really being diligent about our, our uh, blood pressure management and how to manage blood pressure in this population 
diligence around airway management, ventilatory rate, hyperoxia, etc. And then um, one of the other things that we need to look for is evidence of ischemia. And the final piece that we, uh, we wanted to build in here, reflecting on a lot of the experience across the country, both uh, in, in, you know, in, in particular around New York, is the consideration of therapeutic hypothermia. It's something that's very new for us, something we hadn't gotten to just yet, um, but uh, something that we want to start introducing. It's not going to be uh, left as a mandate right now, but a consideration for services that are interested and a protocol for interested services. You know, we have a lot to learn operationally in engaging with therapeutic hypothermia, um, how to do it, how to maintain cold fluids in the ambulance, um, how many folks require management for shivering. There are shivering considerations in there. But we wanted to introduce this as a uh, operational trial to see how things go, recognizing that it, it is absolutely best practice, level of evidence uh, recommendation number one, to put these folks in therapeutic hypothermia. And if we introduce it in EMS, it gets introduced faster and it's more likely to be introduced in the hospital if we start it. So wanted to offer that, and there'll be more coming on this when Kevin Kendall publishes the post-resuscitation care guideline uh, for us in the upcoming protocol updates. And you'll hear more about this in both the online MEMZED education around the protocols as well as the face-to-face -face didactics, whichever you choose to do. Another major, another major change that we, we, uh, we came up with is that, uh, interestingly, at one of the protocol updates last year, I think it was one of the first protocol updates last year, someone mentioned to us, hey, why do you, um, why do you require online medical control for pre-procedural sedation or pain control in one of the sections around pacing or cardioversion, but you don't for the other? What's the big deal and why are they different? And what we kind of recognize is they probably aren't that different, that they're both could be painful um, and both deserve pain control or sedation, and that if we required online medical control for one and not for the other, we should. there really isn't a, a big reason why we do that. And we had a long discussion about what online medical control adds uh, before pain control or sedation and realized that it doesn't add a lot and that we probably don't need online medical control, and so we've taken that away from the requirements both in pacing and in cardioversion. These are now standing orders for both. And that's some of the major changes that have come up in the red section. Kate, anything else you can think of that we, uh, we should touch base with folks on? You'll see with fentanyl um, as an option for folks coming in with chest pain, and you'll see it throughout the other protocols in our um, kind of management of pain that we will be rolling out that fentanyl will be able to be given intranasally, um, which I think is a, a, a great thing. So it's great for kids when you, you know, kids are hard to get IVs in, there's a lot of anxiety, um, but you know, we can translate that over to adults as well in terms of being able to give them fentanyl for their discomfort. So you'll see in the chest pain protocol that fentanyl will be able to be given IV or intranasally. Um, the dose, we're gonna keep the same at this point, and um, there'll be some education rolling around, rolling out around that regarding how to administer intranasal medications. Um, you need a, an atomizer to do that effectively, and in, there are uh, maximum volumes that can be introduced into the nair. Otherwise, a lot of it will drip and be swallowed and won't be as effective. 
Um, and so that will be coming our way as well, which I think is a great addition. And we, uh, we typically try to stay in sync with the AHA when it comes to uh, major changes in the arrhythmia section, the cardiac arrest section. It turns out the AHA updates every five years. Their next update will come in the fall of 2015. So there are no major or substantive changes in the, uh, the management of VF, VT, PEA, um, asystole, or the bradycardias, or tachycardias. We are learning more and more, though, about cardiac arrest and cardiac management every single year. And so some of the stuff that we're building into the cardiac arrest section that we just talked about, those are some of the newer, more kind of, quote-unquote, cutting-edge things that we're looking to build into there. So um, I will mention that with cardiogenic shock, that is the first, first part of the protocols that get touched by this new change from dopamine to norepinephrine. Uh, but we also have other places, as I mentioned, in the post-resuscitation care, in medical shock, and then also in bradycardia where we, we reach toward um, presser use. But I think that's it. I think yeah. that's the major, the major points of uh, change for the red section. Please um, keep in contact. Keep looking for further podcasts because we're going to focus on next the gold and the green section with Drs. Witt Randolph and Jonathan Busco. And then we're going to focus on the yellow and the pink section with Drs. Uh, Peter Goth and uh, Becky Shagrasoulis. In uh, recognition of a few of the comments we've heard from people, this will likely be the last podcast recorded on the current microphone we're using. Um, we're doing some upgrades that hopefully the listening experience will be a little bit better in a uh, coming episode. So uh, stand by. Hopefully uh, you'll notice a change, and it will be for the positive. Great, and thanks to Don, to Jay, to John Powers, and ManyMS for making those updates and those investments in all of our education. Kate, thanks for coming. Thank you. So this is exciting. We yeah, have to be on iTunes now, right? Yay, you're on iTunes. <laughs> and you're doing some great things and um, continue to advocate for, for EMS in our state and provide good care for our patients. Great. And thanks to you guys for listening. Please share this. Thanks for everything you do for our collective patients, and please be safe.